Lopate at large. I'm Ludit Lopate. You were probably taught in school that the evolution of mammals followed the impact of an asteroid that killed the non-bird dinosaurs. But over the last 20 years, scientists have uncovered fossils that are rewriting that story. In her new book, Beasts Before Us, The Untold Story of Mammal Origins and Evolution, paleontologist Elsa Pancharoli, a research fellow at the Oxford University Museum of Natural History and an associate researcher at the National Museum of Scotland, takes us 300 million years earlier to when it's believed that the lineage to which humans belong first emerged. Her book is published by Bloomsbury, and it brings Elsa Pantaroli to our show now. Welcome. Hello, thank you for having me. Oh, this is fascinating. Uh, in, <laughs> in your introduction, you ask whether paleontology is relevant to the layperson. <laughs> well, it's funny, when I started studying to become a paleontologist, actually that question had never occurred to me. I just thought, of course it is. Mm -hmm. But um, it was one of the first things that we had to address, and I discovered that um, among the sciences, there are some people who think, well, they look down a little bit on paleontology as if it's just the study of old bones. <laughs> well, most of the general public's interest has been focused on dinosaurs, and you write that you started your paleontological uh, career interested in dinosaurs and Ice Age megafauna. Why do you think that there's been so little mainstream interest in early mammal evolution? Mm. It's an interesting question. I think it, a lot of it has got to do with just, I mean, just look at those creatures you just mentioned, dinosaurs, mammoths. You just take one look at them and they're arresting, aren't they? It's its not difficult to be interested in them. They're so otherworldly and I think almost um, fantastical. They're not like real creatures, some of them. Um, whereas, you know, our early origins, early mammal origins, people have some interest because it relates directly to us, but they're not quite as, uh, well, spectacular to look at. Although, of course, in my book, I argue that they actually are just as interesting and spectacular. You just might have to spend a little bit more time having a, a closer look. So what led you to an interest in our mammal ancestors instead? I'm, well, I am still interested in basically all extinct life. But when I was doing my master's degree, um, I had assumed that I would study dinosaurs of some kind. But you, you were given a kind of list of different projects that you could be involved in. And I ended up choosing one that was about mammals. It was actually about mammal ankles, of all things. It was quite specific. Um, it, it basically, we can look at the ankles, the shape of the ankles, to tell how mammals moved. So we can use that to, to understand mammals in the past. And through that project, I met some amazing paleomammologists, including Professor Christine Janis, who's a world-renowned uh, paleomammologist. And really, you know, she just instilled in me this, this love for the subject in general. And the more I read, the more amazed I was by, more than anything, the stuff that I didn't know. Um, like you said in your introduction, I think we all think we know the story. Um, and I just couldn't believe it. There's all this other stuff that no one ever talks about, and you never hear about, um, that is really fascinating. Yeah. Uh, reading your book, I, it was apparent to me I didn't know any of it. How much of the story you're telling here is about ecology. One of the themes of your book is the fragility of the modern terrestrial environment. And you write that humans are replicating many of the conditions of previous mass extinctions. Is that because of global warming? 
yeah, lots of different things. We see this is this is why it kind of relates back to what you mentioned earlier about paleontology being relevant. This is why paleontology is relevant because we we have these multiple extinction events over time, and of course we can unpick the different causes. And so there are multiple causes for extinctions, but we are now of course creating some of those scenarios. So for example, at the end of the Permian, which was 252 million years ago, there were these massive volcanic eruptions and those released greenhouse gases. So we have a direct parallel there that we can look and see the effect that those greenhouse gases had at that time on life. And also, of course, how life recovered from that and apply that directly to the here and now. And we can do that for lots of other things like habitat loss, changing sea levels, drops in temperature, rises in temperature. There is There are basically hundreds of lessons to learn from the fossil record. Are we facing a sixth extinction? The, the end per mass extinction led to the age of reptiles. If some life survived during the extinctions of the past, is it likely that large mammals like humans would survive the next one? Mm. Well, you know, the thing about studying dead things <laughs> is that you simultaneously, you can be seen as being quite morose and, you know, very fascinated with death. But actually, I find it very strangely reassuring because even even at the worst mass extinctions, pretty much something always survives. In fact, quite often, several different things survive. As to which group is going to end up being the, the so-called dominant ones, the ones that become large and take over most of the, the sort of ecological space, well, that changes. So it was, as you say, it was reptiles in the Triassic, but actually before that, it was the ancestors of mammals mm. who were the, the so-called, you know, the top dogs. And then, of course, in the most recent mass extinction, uh, it was the non-bird dinosaurs that were the ones that lost to mammals. So, it, you know, it, there are these cycles and different groups come forward. So whether this is definitely, to answer your, your question, this is definitely the sixth mass extinction that we're in just now. And unlike the others, it's caused by a single species, and that's us. Um, and also, unlike the others, there's an animal that has the power to do something about it, which, again, is us. Well, well, I'm going to be gone by the time it hits. So I'm just feeling sad for our grandchildren and their children. I do, too. I mean, this is a very difficult subject to talk about because it's very overwhelming and quite depressing. But I do at the same time have this, I guess you get this geological pair of glasses that you put on and that you see that, you know, each of our individual lives is brief anyway. But looking at the much bigger picture over hundreds of thousands of years, millions of years, definitely life will survive. But of course, that doesn't compensate for the fact that we will lose a great deal of our diversity, the diversity that's been building up so beautifully over the hundreds of thousands, millions of years, we're losing it. So just because we are comforted by the fact that life won't completely disappear, that by no means uh, should stop people from wanting to do something about it. Because, you know, extinction is not really, it might be a natural thing in, in the past, but it's not necessarily a good thing. I'm not saying that uh, we should welcome Getting back to what we were discussing earlier, you write that mammals rule the earth when dinosaurs weren't even a twinkle in the planet's eye. 
<laughs> that's true. Um, I think this is one of the biggest parts of the story that certainly I was really astonished to find out about when I was a student. Um, and I think like most people, I had assumed, oh, I guess I had been told some at some point that mammal origins, mammals really only began after the non-bird dinosaurs became extinct. And then my understanding was pushed back a little bit and I discovered that they were mammals in the time of dinosaurs and they were actually quite diverse. There was a lot of them. And then I was really astonished to have my understanding pushed even further back. So before that really huge mass extinction we were just discussing, the one in the Permian, the end of the Permian, I should say, before that, it was actually the mammal line, which uh, is called Synapsida. And we are synapsids as well. We belong to this line. It was them that were the mega herbivores, the um, giant carnivores, the tree climbers, the diggers, basically in every kind of ecological niche in all the habitats. It was our relatives and ancestors, uh, not the reptiles. So, the reptiles hasn't, but hasn't there been a tendency in popular science to refer to synapsids as mammal-like reptiles? There has, and this is another thing in the book that uh, that I'm quite vehement about at the very start, is I think this is a, still a huge misunderstanding. They were called mammal-like reptiles, but this kind of reflects our actually our back-to-front way of looking at fossils, because we look back in time, and of course we have examples in the living world, so we've got mammals, we've got reptiles. So we've been, for hundreds of years, looking back in time, looking for things that look like mammals, and things that look like reptiles. But of course, time is the other way around. Time goes forward. <laughs> so, so these creatures that looked like reptiles, those are actually mammal line. They're, they're our ancestors. And when you look very, very in great detail at their bones and their skeletons, you can trace back the mammal line. And you discover that, yes, we share a common ancestor with reptiles, but that common ancestor wasn't a reptile and it wasn't a mammal. It was, was it this... fish? The fish? Because the, the, the fish made landfall, uh, mm -hmm. came out of the water and it started animal Absolutely. life. Absolutely. Yeah, well, we we basically are all very highly derived fish. <laughs> it's a joke that paleontologists always tell us that we're actually all just fish. And it's technically true. Uh, yes, you're right. We all come from um, what they call lobe-finned fish. So these are, we still have some alive today. These are fish that have bones in their fins, which uh, most fish species do not have. But uh, some fish, like lungfish, they do. But um, our common ancestor with reptiles is a bit later than that. So so, uh, what, what you, what you just... call uh, am, amniote tetrapods? That's right. That's right. They're neither um, mammal nor reptile. What are they? They, they don't exist, uh, obviously, anymore. Well, I mean, technically they do because we are amniote tetrapods. Um, but this... It's, it's, it gets a bit sort of confusing with the terminology, but basically it's it's a thing from before any of the groups that we know exist. So it's kind of like the prototype of any four-legged egg-laying animal. Um, and then later on, they become reptiles as we know them and they become mammals as we know them. So this split between us and reptiles is really fundamental. It goes back over 320 million years. Mm. We share an an a common ancestor, but definitely mammal-like reptile it's not helpful as a terminology because at no point were our ancestors reptiles. So we have we are grew out of the synapsids. The other group is called the saurapsids. 
Yeah, it can be. Sometimes people just call them reptiles right from the beginning. Um, there's a sort of, so this is the funny thing as well, looking at these two kind of major houses, I actually quite often liken them to Hogwarts houses, you know, Slytherin and Gryffindor, if you like, or uh, or if you're maybe if you're more of a, um, what's it called? <laughs> well, anyway, I'll, I'll not get into that nonsense. Um, what I was going to say is that... Synapse- but, the pop- but, but you should point out that the popular culture has been fascinated by this, even if it's distorted the story. Oh, definitely. I mean, they're, they're, I think we now actually are less interested and have been less uh, taught about it than perhaps in the past. So in the past, there was much more preoccupation with the origin of mammals and a lot more focus on fossils, for example, from South Africa. And also uh, there are some great fossils from uh, the Texas red beds as well of some of these really early synapses. You probably uh, know at least one of them, Demetrodon. So this is this one that has a big sail on its back, a big flat sail. You often get it mixed up with dinosaurs, but it's actually it's actually one of our ancient relatives. Don't know if that's familiar to you. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I can see them in my uh, I can see them in my uh, memory or whatever. Um, yeah, they were always called mammal-like reptiles. They they are from our line. They're actually one of our our more sort of uh, close relatives, as it were. Um, these creatures, yes, they're, they're they're very very definitely all from that same group, our group, the synapsids. The reptiles, on the other hand, it turns out that their heritage is a lot more complicated. Um, it's not clear which ones are definitely reptiles and which ones are, are something else that's not got its own definition. So you would really need to get a reptile expert in to talk you through that because it starts to get tricky. Lots of bones and lots of details. Well, there are a lot of names in the story that I'd never heard before. You've just mentioned Dimitrodons, but all, there's also Peliacosars, Therpsids, Gorgonopsians, <laughs> uh, Lystrosaurus, <laughs> Synodonts, um, Tritial, <laughs> I don't know who comes up with these names, Tritialodontids, um, Dysonodonts, um, Multitubulates. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's actually really quite interesting hearing you say that. I, one of the things that people have pointed out is so many terms. And that, I mean, I, I really cut as much terminology out as I could because it's, you know, science is always full of all this lingo and it's really hard and really dense and difficult to get through. But I would say that I suspect if you were to look at how many Latin names and, and fancy scientific terms I use, I probably haven't used any more than you get in any book about dinosaurs. But the thing is that we're more familiar with the words about dinosaurs. We all know lots and lots of different types of dinosaurs. We all know T-Rex. We all know Stegosaurus. And pterodactyls and things like that. Exactly. And it all seems very familiar to us. But because we don't get taught about the story I've, I've written about in this book, there are a lot of terms that take a little bit of time to get used to. But I have put a very handy um, sort of guide in the inside pages of the book that's, you know, to show you the kind of simplified mammal trees. So hopefully you can find your footing as you go along. My guest on today's Leonard Lopez at Large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live on WBAI.org is Elsa Pantaroli, who's written a book called Beasts Before Us, The Untold Story of Mammal Origins and Evolution, published by Bloomsbury. Um, so, uh, 
when they were living alongside the dinosaurs, didn't the ancient mammals shrink in size? Mm, they was did it, indeed. Was that yeah. a way of, of a, a survival me- mechanism? Well, we tend to find when we're looking at, you know, over deep time in the fossil record and at the process of evolution that, you know, you'll get certain groups will produce very, very large animals and certain ones will produce very, very small ones. And it kind of varies over time. So in the time of the dinosaurs, it does seem that the dinosaurs really were very good at getting big. So they pretty much, you know, if obviously evolution isn't conscious, but if they were a person, they'd be saying, right, guys, let's get big. This is what we're going to do. We're going to be massive. We're going to be chunky. We're going to eat lots of plants. We're going to eat each other. It's going to be fantastic. Whereas mammals kind of scratched their chin and thought, well, if they're going to do that, I've got an idea. Here's something nobody else is doing. Let's get small. Let's heat our blood up. Let's uh, give milk to our babies. They basically went this completely different route. And you say they exploited the safety of the night by becoming nocturnal and developing sensitive eyes. That's that's completely true. Yeah. So we at first we do see a few of the mammal line that are larger, but as dinosaurs and other reptiles become really really common in the environment, we do see this um, what's been called a bottleneck. Although I think that makes it sound really bad when I actually think it's really really uh, an amazing time in mammal evolution, where they do telescope down, they become extremely small and they're really good at it, and they are mostly insect eaters, and we do see. We know that they were tending to come out at night, and we know this due to the the legacy it's left in mammal eyes. It actually changed the the genes for what's in your eye, the different structures and things like that. And basically, they were really they exploited this absolutely fantastic way of living. They were like little ninjas, <laughs> and they did brilliantly at it. In fact, you know, if you look at mammals today, there's around five and a half thousand species of mammal on Earth. Um, almost all of them are tiny little um, rat-like things, just like in the Triassic, because it's a really, really successful way of life. Didn't they also lose some ribs and develop a waist, which allowed for more flexibility in their, their locomotion? Yeah, that's a little bit earlier on, just before that sort of time. They do, they become, um, they, they lose the very lowest, of course, you know, you'll all know from your own body that your waist, you've got no ribs right at your waist. Um, but further back in mammal ancestry, there were ribs most of the way down. So so the earliest mammals would have been much sort of more stocky, you know, less flexible. And then also uh, developed some of the biological traits that define mammals today, like teeth and spines yeah the dinosaurs didn't have teeth no it's not that they didn't have teeth it's how interesting their teeth are or or well it depends if you like to study teeth (laughs) unfortunately the study of mammals is a lot about teeth so the reason they're special is that most reptiles um that have that have teeth of course some have none but the ones that do they have really kind of boring simple teeth that are the same all through their mouths and they tend to replace them constantly throughout their lives so they just fall out here and there and everywhere new ones grow in if you think about a crocodile's jaw lots of pointy teeth they come in they fall out you know they look a mess but if you think of your own teeth of course we have the typical mammal pattern and that is that you have a set of baby teeth and then when you are weaned you then grow in your adult teeth and then you have to look after them for the rest of your life because you don't get any more 
Now that sounds like, what does that matter? Who cares about your teeth? Mm -hmm. But it makes a big difference because if your teeth stay the same throughout your life, they they can basically bite much more precisely. You can start to have like a mortar and pestle. You can have grinding surfaces or like a carnivore. You can have a pair of scissors to cut through meat. You can start to specialize. And that's exactly what mammals have done. And it's unlocked their success story in general has been because they've got these really interesting teeth. I'd imagine that dinosaurs didn't have root canal problems. <laughs> no, no, I don't think so. Are there examples of morphological adaptations or suspected behaviors in early mammals that haven't reoccurred in, in more recent mammal evolution? Mm. Somebody asked me that before, and I haven't been able to think of any. This is one of the things I think that evolution teaches us is that, you know, things keep coming up again and again. Um, and if you, depending on which paleontologist you ask and what time period they study, there are some who would basically say that by the end of the Permian, everything that could be done had been done. I don't think that's quite true. I suspect that there are very specific combinations of features that, um, that you know, maybe haven't cropped up before. I can't think of any, um, but, you know, evolution just tends to recycle the same ideas again and again. If it's a good way of survival, hmm. you know, something else is going to come up with it eventually. Well, the, uh, the, uh, the, the group that gave rise to both marsupials and placental mammals uh, that to which we belong, uh, are all have certain traits, but uh, except maybe platypuses and is it echidnas? Echidnas, yeah. Have you seen an echidna before? They they kind of look like really fat, dirty hedgehogs. I don't know. <laughs> Very strange creatures. Uh, you you get them in um, like Australia, um, Australasia, in fact. Yeah, so, well, so on, in the modern world, we basically have three major groups, as you just outlined, of mammals. We've got ourselves um, and our kin. We are the placental mammals. So we give birth to live young, but they're quite developed. Um, and then we have the marsupials, which uh, famously are things like kangaroos that have pouches. And they also give birth to live young, but they give birth to them when they're really underdeveloped. And then they crawl through to, to suckle in the pouch and they grow up for the rest of their their early life in the pouch before they come out. Well, we, uh, in, in our case, in humans or all the other mammals, there's a pouch of a sort, isn't there? It's the womb. It's just not outside. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you can look at it exactly like that. Because um, you can also say that you were saying there the platypus and echidna, they lay eggs. Well, I mean, we lay eggs as well, but we just don't lay them outside of ourselves. They hatch inside. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, all of these things, you know, they basically we're all doing the same things, but we're doing them in slightly different ways. Uh, so, yeah, you're absolutely right to say that. Um, so those three groups, so that's marsupials, placentals and monotremes, um, those are what we call crown mammals. These are, you know, all the modern living groups. And they actually have a really, really long history. We can trace them back to at least the middle Jurassic. So that's around about sort of 160 million years ago, mm. just over. 
Um, and how do we um, know these dates like that? I, obviously, obviously, in reading uh, some of this material, uh, it gets very dicey. It could be 300 million to 350 million. <laughs> I mean, 50 million years is a long time. Oh, I know. But, but see, among geologists, you know, 10 million years is nothing. You know, <laughs> they just wave these numbers around. Uh, to us as individuals, they seem huge. But when you're looking back in time, of course, it does get more dicey as you look further back. So it's a combination of the fossil evidence and genetics. In terms of fossils, um, some of the earliest mammals that we find that have features of their skeleton and their teeth that tell us that they're definitely from our group, that's the proper mammals, you know, the sort of what we call the crown group, um, they come from the middle Jurassic. So that's, as I say, around about 160, 165 million years ago. So that gives you like a, a max, a minimum date, actually, sorry, a minimum date. We were definitely, as a group, we existed at least that long ago. The genes, uh, however, you know, looking at DNA, it never agrees with the fossils. So you end up with these huge arguments between people. And this is where you get these massive dates where it can be anything, you know, as you say, 50 million years between estimates. Because the estimates from DNA suggest it's much further back than that, maybe even as much as 200 million years ago. Which one is right, we'll never know. We just have to take all the evidence we've got and then have these estimates. And I think that's really the best we're ever going to do. We're never going to get it more than five or 10 million years in resolution. Do the marsupials and the placental mammals have certain things in common? Fur, that feeding their young on milk, uh, an elevated metabolism, which uh, makes us warm-blooded? Mm, definitely. Those things, all those things you've mentioned probably um, are shared by all the ancestors that we have uh, with all the modern living mammals. So including the platypuses and echidnas. The one thing, of course, that we share with kangaroos and other marsupials that we don't share with platypuses and echidnas is that we uh, don't lay eggs externally, you know, that we, well, one. Well, you, you haven't heard some of my radio shows. I've laid a few <laughs> eggs over the years. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> and of course, there are, there are other really, you know, specific details. This is what paleontologists lose themselves in, are these tiny details, things like the shapes of ankles and, you know, the different arrangement of blood vessels in the skull. These things also um, are shared within, you know, within groups. For example, we share them with marsupials, but not with monotremes. That's where all the detail lies. And that's, you know, that's where people like me, of course, spend our time studying that sort of stuff. You often refer to convergent evolution. Mm. Yeah, it's one of my favorite things about evolution. It's what I was talking about earlier. It's the fact that things just keep on coming around. So you'll get animals that evolve the same adaptations to do similar things. My favorite example is there's this uh, really ancient, well, it's not quite a mammal. It's what I would call a mammalia form. So that's just on the edge of being a mammal, but it isn't quite, it hasn't quite got the same uh, features in its body. And it's called docophosser and it comes from China. And it's a tiny little thing. I mean, if you held out your palm, it could definitely curl up in your palm, no problem. About the size of a, a mouse. But this little creature, um, it really astonished the scientists when they first found it in China because it turned out that it had mole paws. So if you think of like moles, 
um, they have these flattened, wide, chunky paws with big claws that are perfect for digging through soil. And in the past, we've tended to think that, that that adaptation to do that is something really modern, only in the last maybe, well, modern in a geological sense, maybe 40, 50 million years at the most. But Dolkofosser lived 166 million years ago. Hmm. So it turns out that animals, if they're, you know, an adaptation like that, like having mole paws, it just comes on around again. <laughs> Dolkofosser, it looks like, was the first one to do it, to basically broaden its paws out so it could shovel soil. And then, you know, over 100 million years later, the modern mammals, they did it too. And that's what convergent evolution is. Another example being, um, you know, uh, fish and dolphins. Dolphins have gone back to the water and they've become fish-like, you know, streamlined. They've lost their fur. They've gotten into that sort of tube shape. And the reason they've done it is because that's the best way to move through water. And then whales as well. Exactly, exactly. Well, you point out that evolution is not goal-directed. What, what do you mean by that? Mm. One of the big problems, and I have it too, in trying to talk about evolution, is because we're humans, we want to talk about things like a human. We talk about it, obviously. You know, so when we talk about evolution, we quite often accidentally speak about it as if it was conscious, as if we say things like, that animal I just talked about, Docofosser, it evolved mole paws in order to dig soil. And of course, that's not the case. The mole paws came about through this process of, you know, it wasn't conscious. The mole didn't decide it wanted to do that any more than a whale decided it wanted to go back into the sea. It was, it's all happenstance. And then, you know, for example, there was uh, a little mammal that had a slightly wider paw than its brother, and it did a little bit better at surviving because it could dig better, and it had more babies, and one of them had bigger paws, and so it goes on and so it goes on. So it's actually, it's not about choice evolution, of course. It's, it's about luck and it's about selection just through how well something can survive. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. P-A-N-C-I-R-O-L-I. Her book that we're discussing is Beast Before Us, The Untold Story of Mammal Origins and Evolution, published by Bloomsbury. Uh, Professor Pantaroli uh, is... uh, uh, has contributed to The Guardian, Paleontology Online, Biological Sciences Review. She's the co-host of the PaleoCast podcast. So you've been doing radio as well. Uh, I've been trying. (laughs) And uh, now we have this book uh, called Beasts Before Us, The Untold Story of Mammal Origins and Evolution, published by Bloomsbury. I guess it's their Sigma uh, imprint. Uh, Would would most paleontologists today uh, agree with everything you have in this book or are there still controversies? 
Oh, there's definitely controversies. There's always controversies. Um, I mean, I should say that the book is not really written for other scientists. It's written for everybody. Um, I think scientists often struggle to talk like normal people. <laughs> and maybe they'll berate me for saying so. But, uh, you know, a lot of them, uh, you talked about the terminology earlier. It can be really hard to understand what scientists are on about. So this book is definitely for everybody to read, I hope. Um, and as a result, of course, you know, I'm not I don't go into massive detail about arguments, specific little detailed arguments that, that, that paleontologists are having with one another over individual bones and stuff, mostly because that, that sort of thing is not really all that interesting. And most of these kind of arguments like they're like you you talked about earlier, for example, an argument over did mammals, um, the modern mammals, did they share an ancestor just before? Before the mass extinction that wiped out the dinosaurs or just after? And it's an interesting question, but actually for the, the story of mammal evolution, we can comment on it and then move on because we're never going to resolve it. So definitely, I think there'll be some scientists who might pick this up as well and say, hang on a minute, <laughs> you haven't mentioned 50 million tiny little details that I know. <laughs> And they're right, I haven't, because I wanted it to be fun and readable um, and exciting. How important to the process was the breakup of uh, Pangea and, and the movement of the continents on tectonic plates? Mm. The, the way that our tectonic plates move is one of these really massively important parts of, of actually of evolution, because obviously, as you you know, as you're pointing out there, we had a supercontinent um, called Pangaea, which was around for um, you know a good sort of hundred, two hundred million years. Um, and in, if, if you imagine this great big supercontinent, of course, other than if there's mountain chains or rivers, animals can move around all over it, and so they can mix. Um, as I say, with a few exceptions. So when this broke up, it basically meant that certain populations of animals absolutely could not mix because, you know, some of them might make it over a mountain chain, but they can't make it over an ocean. So in fact, it's had a huge influence on the groups of modern mammals that we see today. Um, we now know that a lot of um, the major groups, so I'll give you an example. There's a group called Afrotheria, and that's the group that includes elephants, manatees, um, what else, aardvarks, mm -hmm. golden moles. We call it Afrotheria because we can now trace, they all have a common ancestor that was in Africa or the Afro-Arabian, Arab, sorry, Arabian area. And that ancestor was separated from the rest of mammals around about the time that Pangaea broke up. So we find that with almost every group, that most of these major mammal groups, we trace their origins back to when the supercontinent split up. And, and, course, uh, and as with humans uh, who are, uh, originated in Africa, mm -hmm. they, they moved. So yeah. we so we find even though we find some uh, that tend to be local, others are all over the place. Precisely, uh, yeah. Because as well as splitting up, of course, continents come together again. Hmm. A great example of that is in uh, North and South America, which have, were separated for a, a massive amount of time. I actually forget when they when they were separated from, but it's a, a, over a hundred million years of separation. So you got completely different groups. You got only really placental mammals in North America and mainly mars uh, marsupials in South America. 
But um, over the last 50 million years, the Isthmus of Panama uh, connected the two. And so you had the populations from the north going south and from the south going north. And that's why you now get possums in North America, which of course are marsupials. Um, but you also get jaguars and other uh, placental mammals in South America, which of course are um, placental mammals. So yeah, they, sometimes continents, they, when they move around, they bump into each other and the animals, uh, it's like getting off a boat and they, they rub their hands together and think, right, where to now? <laughs> well, how relevant is that to the way you begin your book, which is in Scotland on the Isle of Skye? Have many new fossil discoveries been made in the Hebrides, and should we be surprised that the area is so rich in, in the fossil record? Mm. Uh, Scotland's actually not blessed with rocks from the time of dinosaurs, I'm afraid. We don't have very many at all. We have a few from the Triassic, um, not far from the capital Inverness, you might you might have heard of. It's towards the east, we have some Triassic ones. And then in the Hebrides, as you point out, we have some Jurassic ones, but not very much. Um, so there have been a lot of discoveries basically since the 70s when they first realised that there were um, vertebrate fossils from the Jurassic on the Isle of Skye. There have been a trickle of really great discoveries, but it's in the last sort of decade um, there's been a team that I, I'm, I'm lucky to be part of that's found a, a fantastic site where we get really, really small vertebrate animals. So things like mammals, but also um, salamanders, so, you know, related to frogs, amphibians, basically, uh, and little lizards, as well as turtles, and of course, dinosaurs and flying reptiles and stuff. But um, their bones are not as well represented as these little tiny creatures are. Most of these places are discovered uh, through while mining is taking place. Has mining destroyed some of the record? This is a really interesting give and take. Um, so looking back at fossil discovery in general, like you say, infrastructure in general, so mining, building roads, um, anything where we dig into the earth, that has been the major source of all fossil discovery for, uh, for well, since the beginning of it as a Western science. So as in the Western world, we kind of stopped doing that stuff. You're right, it has had an impact. We find less material because we don't have the same sort of mining industries and things. And that, that wave of discovery has moved to other countries. Um, China, for example. Um, also, you know, it's, it's, there's a lot of socioeconomic factors about this as well, that the sort of waves of discovery have moved, and quite rightly, to different places. Whereas I think Europe and North America were obviously the sort of first wave of, of discovery. Where else have you looked for uh, this information? South Africa, China, South America? I have worked in South Africa as well. Um, Would we find any in New York, New York or is that uh, less likely? Oh, I can't comment. I don't know the geology of New York very well. But I will say, going back to talking about sky, that, of course, until just, and I use that in a geological sense, just 50 million years ago, um, sky in the Outer Hebrides, we were attached to the east coast of North America. Oh, that's why I brought so, that up. 
Yeah, exactly. Um, it's just luck would have it that the split for the Atlantic Ocean happened um, where it did, and that Scotland, basically, the whole of Scotland is made of rocks that come from the same place as North America, um, whereas England and most of Wales and in Europe, they're part of a different landmass. What was the KPG event, and why is it a capital K, a capital P, and a lowercase g? <laughs> it's geological terminology uh, at its worst. Uh, so some people might have also heard it used to be called the KT boundary. Mm -hmm. And it's the um, mass extinction that killed the non-bird dinosaurs. So the K, it stands for Cretaceous. Now, Cretaceous is spelt with a C, mm -hmm. but uh, the Cretaceous is known for its chalk, and chalk in German is Kreide, which is spelt the K. <laughs> or is it Kreide? Kreide or Kreide, sorry. I, I, sorry if I'm offending any German speakers. So that's where the K comes from. And the PG comes from the next time period, which is the Paleogene. So it's, it's quite often referred to as the KPG boundary or the KPG event. And it was basically a massive asteroid um, pummeled the Earth uh, in what is now Mexico. Um, because of where it struck, it was particularly bad. Um, it was half in the sea and half on land. And the rocks underneath were made of something called gypsum. Um, so it released very toxic gases into the atmosphere. And because it hit partly in the sea, it created these massive tidal waves. Um, and I forget all the figures, but, you know, it was the equivalent of, you know, hundreds of Hiroshima bombs going off all at once. Um, so this caused the massive climate change that's, that didn't just kill off the non-bird dinosaurs. It killed lots of other different groups, including the flying and marine reptiles and lots of mammal groups as well. You say that the fossil record could be very misleading. In what ways? Oh, yeah, lots of ways. Uh, so before um, the early uh, 20th century, of course, you know, people have always been very interested in fossils, but they didn't tend to apply um, statistics and mathematics to really look at them rigorously. So we had quite a lot of misconceptions about, for example, you know, how many animals there were at different time periods or how fast things evolved in certain times compared to others. And in the early 20th century, there was this new wave of scientists that basically said, right, OK, maths for everything, which I have to say disheartens me because it's not my strong subject. <laughs> but as a result, they added this this level of rigor to absolutely everything. You say and mathematics. They, we don't say maths in this country. We say, that's the, the British way of saying mathematics. Ah, right? I, I apologize. No, it's OK. I just want <laughs> my audience to be aware of that I, I went to school in England and there were all sorts of things. <laughs> that uh, would confuse me, at, at least at the start. Oh, I, I majored in maths. Yeah, mathematics. That's what I'm, what I'm meaning, yeah. So they used statistical analyses. Um, so instead of eyeballing things, they started actually applying mathematical analyses to stuff. And it, it really began to shake up many different ideas we had about how, how things, basically patterns of evolution, how fast events happened and, you know, how rapid, for example, extinctions were. One of the really famous things they looked at was the pattern of extinction through time. 
Um, and they did that by looking at the numbers of different species that appeared and disappeared, um, which of course required a lot of computation to do over, over millions of years. And that's how they discovered that there were these um, five massive extinction events. Um, and of course, we're now in the sixth. And it would be very, very difficult to recognize that without looking at it numerically rather than just eyeballing it. My guest is Elsa Pantaroli. Her book, Beasts Before Us, The Untold Story of Mammal Origins and Evolution, published by Bloomsbury. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. In your first chapter, you provide a history of geology and biology in which you discuss the imperialist framework in which those disciplines were born. Hasn't paleontology been largely the, the province of white Western men, even though so many of the, the finds have been in areas where white Western men don't live? Absolutely true. Yes, uh, that is the case. Um, and there's still a legacy of that in multiple ways, a legacy in our collections. So, of course, you know what, and this is not just for science, this is for, um, you know, anthropology as well. When you say in our collections, you mean the museum collections. Are, are, yes. they, are they misleading often? Misleading. I'm not sure. Mm, I'm not sure how to answer that. But what, yeah, what I was what I was going to say is that our, you know the collections in museums and institutions, you know, they overwhelmingly are. Yes, they are from from other countries, and they were collected, um, you know, quite often under very dubious circumstances. Mm -hmm. um, but they they can. I guess they can be misleading in the sense that we tend to have collections from places where we have colonized. So we have massive parts of the world that are, are kind of missing from the picture. Um, so huge expanses, for example, of the continent of Africa um, that we also can't gain access to because of either the political climate or um, because of the vegetation, for example. You know, places like forests are not good places to look for fossils. Um, or, or deserts uh, are another example, perhaps. So yes, we have these skews and these these uh, gaps in our knowledge. So there's still lots to discover. And of course, ideally, what we really would like is to start seeing um, a way that the, that the people in those countries are the ones that are leading this research. And that's the other legacy I was, I was going to, to bring up is, of course, you say it used to be the preserve of mostly Western white men, but I'd argue it really still is uh, mostly the preserve of certainly Western white people, um, more often men than women still. And it is changing, but um, it's not, in my opinion, changing fast enough. Um, but this is, of course, echoed through all the sciences. This is a, an ongoing problem. It's a legacy of our, of our history. Well, you mentioned the teacher who inspired you, Christine Janis, and you note that the contributions of women are increasingly being acknowledged. You write about Zofia Kielin Jaworowska, a Polish Mesozoic mammal researcher who is the first woman to lead fossil collection expeditions in Mongolia. 
oh, she was an absolutely amazing person. I mean, she not just that, but as a as a teenager, she knew about fossils and she knew about the Gobi Desert from quite young. But as a teenager, um, she was growing up in Poland during the Second World War, and she actually joined the Polish resistance and was essentially fighting Nazis. While in her backpack, she carried a book on paleontology, and she would read this and leaf through it whenever she had a you know some downtime, and just dream that one day she might be able to study these fossils. And after the occupation ended, she helped with the other museum people to rebuild the museum, which had been destroyed. And she helped rebuild uh, the, the entire discipline in that country. And as you say, led um, expeditions to the Gobi Desert. You write. I think the thing ahead. about that. Sorry. Just finish what you were going to say. I'm sorry. No, I was going to say, I think the key thing to point out about that is, of course, it's, it's great that she is a woman and you don't hear often stories of women. But of course, she is still a Western woman, Western white woman. But I would point out that one really amazing thing about her is her generosity to support the people from the countries that she went to. So she didn't just go to Mongolia, find fossils and take them away. They, at the end of every field season, she gave all of the equipment to the people in Mongolia and help them to fund and build their own research. Um, so, you know, this, and throughout the rest of her career, she was always extremely generous with her expertise, her time, her funds in helping other people get, basically pulling them up with her, helping them get to the same kind of level. And I think this is, um, you know, in science, this is something that we need to increasingly do is be aware of the fact that we are sitting in a position of extreme privilege um, and we should be making room for other people to join us. Didn't some of the most important pioneers in the field, recognizable names like Darwin and Lamarck, for example, um, Buckland, whatever, uh, proposed some ideas that are no longer considered acceptable? Oh, definitely. Um, the, the, it's a very difficult thing to discover that some of the people that we have, we do consider to be the sort of heroes of science and so on, that they often have very dubious backgrounds. There's one in particular that I talk about in the book who was a hero of mine for a while um, because he was a Scottish paleontologist who ended up going to South Africa. And he found uh, he his, he's responsible for finding some of the really key important fossils from the Triassic and the Permian in South Africa that tell us about the origin of mammals. Um, however, in finding out more about him to write about him, I discovered this whole other side of his history that was um, really, well, just horrible. It was all tied in with the kind of colonialism of, mm -hmm. of course, South Africa. I mean, we all know we all know about that sort of history. And of course, this sort of stuff doesn't get talked about um, because people find it so difficult. So I'd seen the fossils he'd collected and talked to lots of people who were experts in them and the subject of his other practices had never come up. Um, and we need to have these conversations. We need to be willing to talk about them. Doesn't mean that we can't still use those fossils, that we can't still, you know, do the science, but we need to be aware of them and put everything in the context of how they were collected and the views of the people who collected them, which definitely um, have 
you know, they are sometimes quite unsavory. Well, uh, we're pretty much out of time, but I did want to bring up one other thing. Along with descriptions of your work at dig sites in South Africa and Scotland, you discussed doing laboratory work at European synchrotron radiation facility in France. Haven't new yeah. techniques like uh, synchrotron X-ray scanning been developed uh, and contributing to the knowledge in recent years? And you oh, have about def- two minutes. <laughs> Yeah, well, in two minutes, my two-minute pitch for technology, yes, absolutely. So we we have another wave in paleontology now of looking at things that we had already studied, somebody already looked at them, experts, but they got as much information out of them as they could at the time. And now, as you say, we have um, CT scanning, which is like you would get in a hospital, you know, that can look through and see your bones, although uh, we use much more powerful x-rays than that. And then we have things like synchrotron, which is at a level above that. It's like an X-ray turned up to 11. And uh, this can see tiny detail. I mean the size of a bacterium. Hmm. And it can allow us to do things like counting the rings inside teeth to tell how old an animal was. So you could then find something, for example, it's 160 million years old, and you can say that thing was 10 years old when it died. Really? And this, Yeah, yeah, this is the kind of detail that we're getting now. So we can re-examine all the things that we looked at in the past and get even more information out of them. And it's transforming our ability to understand everything from the origins of milk and fur to, um, you know, how, how long an animal could live in what the about, past. What about DNA studies? Oh, so, well, DNA studies, we're pushing back the limit of how how far back we can do DNA testing. So we think that the upper limit's probably fossils that are around a million years old. But I suspect we'll keep pushing that back and we'll be able to get DNA that's a little older than that. Um, so who knows what kind of information we'll find out. We've already got all kinds of great stuff about mammoths, for example. Um, we've done DNA testing on mammoths that tell us a lot about their genetic history and how they lived. Um, I don't know if we'll ever get back to the dinosaurs, but maybe a few million years. uh, Who knows? One of those pioneers gave us the name dinosaur, Richard Owen. That's true, yeah. Some of the, those big names uh, are a little dubious. And I did try in the book to, I have to mention them because they're important, mm-hmm. but I didn't want them to be the focus. I wanted to bring in new names and maybe some people that you haven't heard of. Um, so I hope I've succeeded. Well, I th- you've succeeded with me anyway. That's why I invited <laughs> you on the show. And my well, great thank you. thanks to you for uh, writing such a fascinating book, Elsa Pancheroli, P-A-N-C-I-R-O-L-I. I hope I pronounced your name correctly. Yeah, I was going to say most people don't and you, you got it spot on. I, I'm assuming probably because of the there's a large Italian community in New York, maybe. Yes. No, yeah. The book, <laughs> Thank you. The book is Beasts Before Us, The Untold Story of Mammal Origins and Evolution, published by Bloomsbury. It's been fascinating. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And that brings us to the end of today's show. If you'd like to hear more of our one-hour interviews on one subject, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org and on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. And you'll find links to our over 500 past shows at LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. 
Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI so that this show can continue coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. and in which we can talk about things that other people are not really talking about. So we're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to step up and, and make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 right now. That's 212 212- 209-2950. Please do it right now because we need your help to keep bringing you this unique, in-depth content. Uh, WBAI relies 100% on listener donations. And, and if you're the kind of listener who tunes in regularly to Leonard Lopit at Large, or if you just discovered our unique content, we need you to step up right now. As I said, by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 with a tax-deductible donation to keep this historic station. The only one, the New York Radio Dial, that's entirely listener-sponsored on the air. In, in Britain, they have the BBC. You've got to pay a license fee. We rely totally on your sense of responsibility. And as I'm sure you can understand, we need your help now more than ever because of all the difficulties of the last year. Everyone who has already stepped up to support BAI in the name of Linda Lopez at Large, thank you so much. And I hope you can join us again tomorrow when documentary filmmaker Rachel Boynton will discuss her new film, Civil War, or Who Do We Think We Are? We'll see you then.